on in Jude this morning, so I want to invite you to get your Bibles. We're going to read the whole book of Jude, and I've invited Deborah to come, and she is going to lead us. Let's stand together, those of you that are able, and uh, let's read Jude 1 through 25. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he he has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing, was disputing about the body of Moses, did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning, unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam, uh, error, Balaam's error, and and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As these feasts with you, sorry, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam, of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, uh, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lamb comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds and ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things the ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity of gathering together today, of opening up your word and allowing it, Lord, to fashion and shape us. And Lord, we ask that you would teach us. We ask that you would... Um, alert us to ways in which we are um, not thinking clearly, ways in which that we have been deceived in our, in our um, thought processes. And 
Lord, would you allow your Holy Spirit to clarify and to convict and to instruct, Lord, in a way that would, would uh, honor, Lord, your word and would, uh, would it, Lord, uh, fashion and shape us, Lord, to be the kind of people you want us to be. And, uh, Lord, uh, this book has been not only a, a challenge, but it has been a joy. It has been revealing. At the same time, it's been discouraging. And, Lord, we, we desperately want to understand your purpose for us, Lord, in the context where you've placed us. So, Lord, help us today to, to answer that question from your word. We ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <coughs> Many of you have probably seen the, um, the advertisements about you know, people needing to join the military forces. And Uncle Sam has this big finger pointing out at you, right? And the, the point there is that we want you. And there's a sense in which we have come through Jude's little letter here where he's laid out some foundational pr principles and he's taken us now for a number of verses looking at others who have failed and who have been miserable examples of those who have not acknowledged God and as a result have deserved judgment. But what we have here is a transition. We have a time now where we're moving from those examples to us. And so over the course of the next number of weeks, not next week because it's Christmas, we are going to work our way um, through this very practical and important passage of Scripture. I want to read verses 17 through 23, which is the text that we're going to be spending the next few weeks in. I'll just say this. I initially was going to deal with this in one sermon. And then I thought, okay, I'll deal with it in two sermons. And then as I was winding things up this week, I was like, no, it's going to end up being three sermons because I don't want to rush through what God is saying we must do. You know, we, we've seen these ungodly men who are doing ungodly things in ungodly ways. But we also want to see what godly people should be doing in the context of that ungodliness and not rush through it, but take our time to really kind of dial down what's going on. So let's begin at verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the prediction of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And you could even submit there the word you, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Let me remind you of the structure of Jude. Uh, we began by, by identifying verse 3 and verse 4 as the key verses that kind of unfold and unpack this little letter. Verse 3 um, is really telling us that we need to contend for the faith. Verse 4 tells us why. And verse 3 then is fleshed out in verses 17 through 23, which we've just read. And we have verse 4 then, which has basically been fleshed out by verses 5 through 16. One tells us how to contend. The other one says why we need to contend. Gives us the examples here of um, the reasons for and the necessity for contending. But now we're in this, this kind of transitional section where we're not, we're not just told that we, that, you know, here's, here's the why, but there's also the how, and we get to the theme, and we think about the theme now, contending for the faith, which literally means to fight, okay? To battle, to exercise your energy. Now, I don't know about, about you, but I, I actually enjoy boxing. I enjoy watching boxing. I enjoy uh, the dynamics of boxing probably more than I do mixed martial arts. I think there's two completely different sports. Um, but there's something about that guy who is the coach or the trainer during those little breaks between the rounds 
that you look at when the guy goes and he sits down, there's a guy in front of him saying, okay, this is what you're going to do. Here's what you have to do. He's coming at you this way. He's doing this. You need to do this. You need to fight here. Keep the, keep the arms up. And, you know, make sure you get the jabs in. He's giving all this instruction. And there's a sense in which Jude is like that here. He's saying to those who are in the churches, as they're pausing, as they're reading, here is what you have to do. You have to contend for the faith. You have to use your energy. You have to stand. You have to fight. You have to do what you can to to honor God with your role and function in the body of Christ. But there's a tone. And we looked at the tone before, but I want to flesh it out a little bit more right now. The tone here is this word beloved. This is a tender and passionate word from a, a known and respected pastor who's Jude who loves the church. And so now Jude uses his word in verse 1, beloved of God, he calls them. In verse 3, again, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you. But notice in verse 17, he says, you, beloved, you are to remember. And then in verse 20, beloved, build yourselves up in this most holy faith. Now, the word beloved is not just an endearing word. It is also a word that was intimately tied to suffering and death and those undergoing suffering and death. And we see it often in our obituaries. Here is, you know, so-and-so, beloved of this family. It's a word that we understand is used to describe this kind of this tension and this, this, this agony about the loss of someone or the struggle of someone. And so there is a sense in which, and it's a subtle sense, that he's writing to these people who are in the trenches, who are under the oppression of these false teachers, and he's trying to expose uh, this false teaching to them, and he's, he's calling them to contend. He's calling them to stand up. He's calling them to, to be counted and to do what is necessary to, to maintain the purity of the gospel and the, the, the clarity of who Jesus is. Now, it's a word that has history in Scripture. In Genesis 22, um, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Abraham describes the son that he is about to... Um, sacrifice, because God had called him to do that, he describes him as his beloved son. Just think about what's going on there in that context. There is this impending death. There is this struggle going on. At the transfiguration in Matthew 17, where Peter, James, and John are given the privilege to see Jesus in his glory, a voice from heaven, it's the Father's voice, speaks these words. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. This beloved son ultimately who has come to this earth to do what? To suffer. To die. So with the identification of beloved and the content of of verse 4 with what these, these false teachers are doing, we could comfortably say, that this is very likely, or I should say that it is very likely, that the only way these beloved believers can avoid suffering or persecution is to curse Christ and deny Jesus as their only Lord and Savior. But Jude is confronting this pressure by calling on God's people to contend for the faith. So having exposed having illustrated, having established the ungodliness of the false teachers, that's verses 5 through 16, Jude now transitions, and in a sense, this is the real heart of this letter. And that's why I'm saying I, I didn't want to rush through it. We want to take our time to see this is where, this is where Jude is heading. The, the rest has been kind of build up and, and guiding and warning, but now this is the meat and potatoes. This is what he is calling them to do. So here is my my proposition this morning. In verses 17 um, through through 23, Jude gives the churches practical application 
on how to contend for the faith in the context of ungodliness. Practical application as to how to contend for the faith in the context of ungodliness, or you could say the context of unbelief. In, in short, you could say in the heat of the battle, we need to hear the cry of our Savior calling out to his beloved, saying, this is, a, this is a call to remember. This is a call to remain. This is a call to rescue. That would be the three main thrusts of this passage. A call to remember. A call to remain in the love of God. And a call to rescue, ultimately, by mercy, those who are in the fire. And so right now, what we want to do is just look at that first call. A call to remember call to remember. Now once again, let's look at verse 17 through 19. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a call to remember. It is to be willing to go back to the past and remember the lessons that are taught there. Now just like the statement that is written outside the museum at the Dachau concentration camp near Munich, Germany, where it says this. As people leave that museum, it says this. Those who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat its mistakes. What Jude has been doing in verses 5 through 16 is to remind the beloved. If you look at verse 5, that's what he says. To remind the beloved of the bad examples from biblical history. He wants readers to remember the evils of the ancient past. But now he wants his readers to remember the more recent past of the foundational teachings of the apostles that established the churches. Now this may not be necessarily a blanket statement of all the apostles, but each of those churches that he is writing to had specific men that went and started and planted those churches and built them up and established them. It's as if Jude is saying, <laughs> I need to click this here. It's as if Jude is saying, those who fail to learn from Israel's history and the foundational teaching of the apostles will be swallowed up by the pressure and teaching of those false teachers. Now, friends, we have an opportunity to remember. God calls his people to remember. But there's something we must understand. To remember is not simply just a mental exercise of recalling past events. It also is a call to act when one remembers. Just, you know, my, my daughter Deanna recently has been learning how to drive. She's doing a great job at it. And when you, when you start something new, there's lots of things you have to remember. Most of you have been driving for a long time. Don't even think about it. You just hop in and it all comes naturally. But you've got to remember this and that. And so when you remember, you say, okay, that's what I need to do. It's not just, oh, yeah, I remember what I'm supposed to do. The remembering is the means by which you can do what you need to do. So a call to remember here is to be able to look back and to act on what one remembers. And what Jude has said about Israel should move the beloved believers here to act now. And Jude now calls them to remember and to move and to think and to act in a way that flows out of what they remember. So first of all, I want you to notice he says, remember the teaching of the apostles. So, so what is it that they need to be reminded of? What did the apostles teach and predict? Well, the apostles would have taught many things. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That the grace of God, that is Christ himself, according to Titus 11, uh, 2, verses 11 and 12, came training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. In other words, the grace of God, if you go back to verse 4, 
is not an opportunity for sensuality. The grace of God is the means by which we are being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live in a way that would honor God and is fleshed out there in Titus by saying self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. The apostles are teaching that. They're teaching that as foundational truths to the churches. This is basic Christianity. They would also be teaching that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. There's a book that we studied recently all about that. Book of John. But over and over and over again, the foundational realities are, this is what the gospel is. This is who Jesus is. And ultimately, that Jesus is Lord. So these would be foundational truths that would counter the perversions of the false teachers who were promoting a perversion of the grace of God, grace that leads to sensuality, and a rejection of Christ as their authority, that Jesus really isn't master and Lord. Now that was not the message that was preached when those churches began. The message that was preached when those churches began is the true, pure gospel and the clear understanding of who Jesus actually is. So there's a need here and there's a call to remember the teaching of the apostles. But the, this teaching continues though more specifically by saying the prediction of the apostles and notice now verse 18 that in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. So certainly there were these foundational truths, but he's homing in now on one particular truth that is part of that prediction of these apostles that there will be in this last time scoffers who follow their own ungodly passions. Now a little pause here about this expression, this last time, or I might say last days. It's not some distant time awaiting the churches that Judah's writing to. It refers to the time between the Lord's departure, his ascension into heaven, and his return. So the churches that Judah's writing to are in the last days. The church that I am preaching to today is in the last days. The last days is talking about that, that one section. All right? So they are living in these last times, these last days, and so are we. And what marks the character and nature of those last times or last days is that there will be scoffers. It doesn't take too long for us to find some scoffer around, does it? All right, turn on your TV, listen to some talk shows. Eventually, they're going to say something negative about Christ. They're going to say something that's a scoffing, a mockery of those who believe God's word to be true. It doesn't take long. We're living in a culture that is full of people who are scoffing and mocking and ultimately men and women who are following their own ungodly passions. Now, this is what the apostles consistently tell us. Let's look at a couple of other examples here. 2 Peter 3.3, which is a complementary text of Scripture. Jude may have taken some of his resource and his, his guidance from, from Peter. But I want you to listen to what Peter says. 2 Peter 3.3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. <laughs> scoffers will come in the last day, and what will they do? They'll scoff. That's what scoffers do. Now, we shouldn't be surprised. Following their own sinful desires. Aha. See, it's their own sinful desires that is the reason why they come scoffing, because they do not want anyone to step on the toes of their own sinful desires. They want the freedom to act and behave how they want to act and behave. They do not want the gospel to constrain them from behaving and acting in a way that they desire to behave. They do not want an authority like Jesus to, to speak and to be authoritative so that they cannot 
pursue their own ungodly passions. Well, that's the nature of these last days. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Then turn to Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 and following. Now this passage, you may remember, <clears throat> is one of the texts that we use as we talked about eldership. And the need for eldership, the need for godly leaders in the church. Acts chapter 20, 28, here's Paul, and he is speaking to the Ephesian elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. It's the same activity. There are these people coming in Fierce wolves, not sparing the flock, who are trying to draw people away with their false ideas, their false teachings, their, their, their twisted things, they're called there. It's the same, same thing that's going on in Jude. And now turn to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4. There's, there's, in fact, there's, there's a bunch of these. I'm not going to go through all of them, but uh, you are probably pretty familiar with um, <clears throat> what Paul says to Timothy and uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and following. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, right, last days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. What's interesting about a lot of what, what uh, Paul is saying to Timothy is this is the other side of the coin. The other side of the coin is people are saying, you can't, you can't, restraint, you can't. And Jude is saying, these are the people saying, oh yeah, the grace of God gives you freedom to, to live like you want. It's okay, you can have Jesus and you can have your sensuality too. And then turn over to First, uh, Second Timothy, I think it is. One more here from, from Timothy. Um, and uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, un, uh, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a, the appearance of godliness. Having the appearance of godliness. All these people having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. From among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sin, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Now, you just, it's, it's the similar language. It's the same kind of stuff that's going on here. This is the challenge for the church in the last days. Scoffers will come, and they'll come in various forms, and their scoffing and their arguments and their teachings will deny the gospel, will pervert the gospel, will undermine the character of Christ. So the point that Jude is making is that in the last days, scoffers will be coming. To scoff is to mock, is to ridicule. The scoffer is the opposite of the righteous. But just think about Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, right? And then it talks about, in the last verse there, the righteous will stand before God, but the Wicked, who are the scoffers, will not be able to stand. So these scoffers are the opposite of the kind of people that God is calling us to be. They are the enemies of the cross. Philippians 3.18, For many of whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now the question is, what will they be scoffing? Well, according to Jude, 
They'll be scoffing at the purity of the gospel. They'll, they'll be mocking the fact that it's like, you know, you really, you really think you have, to, you have to believe that you're a sinner? Why can't you just, you know, embrace the forgiveness that, that God has for you? You know, why, why even talk about sin? Je- Jesus loves everyone, right? They'll scoff the authority of Christ as if, as if what he has to say is really that important. According to Peter, in his account, in 2 Peter 3, 4, they are mocking the promised return of the Lord. You know, where is the promise of his coming? I don't see him coming. Do you see him coming? I don't see him in the clouds at all. That's the kind of stuff that's going on. And so the point that Jude is stressing is this. Remember that in the last time there will be scoffers. And this brings us to the place where we can confidently say that Jude wants, wants his re- readers to remember the sovereignty of God. So we're kind of working down through this little passage here and understanding that ultimately what Jude is trying to remind these people of is that the apostles already said in the last days scoffers would come. And if the apostles are saying that, who is actually speaking through the apostles to God's people? It's God. And what is God saying? He's saying in the last days scoffers will come. And so we must remember the sovereignty of God. Since he is the creator of the universe and he's breathing out his word through the apostles, we must understand that he, through Jude, is telling the people, this is what you have already been told. This is what God said would happen to the church. This is what he promised you would have to face. Now, friends, we may not like that. But this condition, this circumstance, this reality about the last days is all part of God's sovereign plan. In other words, Judah's saying, don't panic. Don't think that the end is near. Don't go into a tailspin and abandon God and the glory of his gospel. No. Remember that God is sovereign and that his perfect plan includes the suffering of the saints at the hand of the ungodly scoffers who shake their fist at God, his gospel, and his word. Now friends, this is not your standard comfortable American Christianity, is it? This has been true throughout the ages. It was true in the early church, as we have here revealed to us by Jude in his letter and this example of of, of what they would face. It was true in the first couple of centuries of church history where false teachers rose up and convoluted their Gnostic teaching with the revealed word of God to run havoc among the true church. It has continued through the years at various times in history in the medieval era when Christianity became much more of a political movement than a God-honoring institution. They're distorting God's truth and the gospel, denying God's truth to the common man. During the Enlightenment, when man put his reasoning above the revealed word of God, In the early 20th century, when man experimented with communism at the expense of God's truth. What happened in the communistic context? You have God's word, get rid of it. We're taking it away from you. We don't want anyone to undermine man's ideal way of living. These religious people, these Christian people were persecuted. In the latter part of the 20th century, There's humanism, where man is the ultimate God. And he has no room for a pure gospel and an authoritative Christ. Because man is the authority. And now in a post-postmodern culture, a post-Christian culture, where the, the social and political climate loves to lace its experiments with Scripture The pure gospel is still perverted so as to embrace sinful sensuality that is acceptable to God. Friends, those are the discussions that are going on among the airwaves today. 
You think, you think a homosexual will go to hell? You think God hates homosexuality? You think that's a, a sin? Would a loving God say that? Would a loving God do that? Well, if you take the gospel and you say, no, he wouldn't, then you have perverted the gospel for sensuality purposes. And the undermining of the authority of Christ is also the next thing. It's still rejected as the source of hateful ideas and true, the true Christ is emasculated to simply be a beacon of love, hope, and tolerance for all. Friends, we're living in a time when people are scoffing at the very core things that we believe are dear. And it should not surprise us. And so we must be careful because we may be tempted to get all riled up in the state of affairs where scoffers are allowed to freely follow their own passions and we can become sinfully angry as these, or at these false teachers. We might cause division among God's people because of the way we're acting. The false teachers have caused division among, the, among God's people. But we must remember that they are worldly people, it says there, devoid of the Spirit. Their appetites, their connection to life, their reasoning for living is bound up in the here and now. Now, friends, is that where you're at? Is life and living all about the here and now? And I'm not saying you don't love your family and your kids and what God has called you to, but there's something greater, there's something far more important about life and living than the here and now. But not for those who are scoffers because they have no hope of any future. This is all they have to live for. They are in reality helpless and hopeless, blind enemies of God, lost, dead in their sins, ultimately awaiting God's judgment. So God is calling us to a perspective that finds strength in Him. He has called us to love Him and be the church in the context of scoffers and the ungodly. But friends, we can be so guilty of wanting our perfect, untouchable lives to be void of any persecution. That's how it was in the good old days. Remember the good old days? Good old days when you just kind of went to church and everyone was happy and, oh, what church do you go to? Oh, that's nice. It's just the good old days where everything was just perfect and nice. But the subtle lie is that we wrestle against the promise of a Christian utopia with Christian mechanics and Christian schools and Christian magazines and Christian jobs and Christian baseball teams and Christian bingo and Christian music and Christian grocery stores and Christian male persons and Christian coffee houses and Christian, Christian coffee and Christian fitness clubs and Christian weight loss programs. I was joking with the people at our cornerstone the other night, and I think it was there. Or maybe it was the class I was teaching. It's all muddled right now. But if you go to the Christian bookstore, you know you can get these little, these little mints. They're called testaments. <laughs> Give me a break. I mean, even when you break them in half, the, the ratios of Old and New Testament just do not match. You know? But you, you see how... We want everything to have this kind of Christian thing. The bottom line is that we have become accustomed to a Christian bubble and we have difficulty when that bubble is burst or when it is invaded by the ungodly. Now let me just pause and let me say a couple of things. I'm not saying things like a Christian school is not a good idea. That's a very good idea. The problem is when we want everything that's going on in our lives to be in this, this safe, protected bubble. Friends, there is no such thing as a context where Christians can be at home among other like-minded believers except for the church. This is to be not a bubble but a haven. The church is not a place but a people. People. 
It is, in a sense, the locker room from where we get our guidance and instructions and counsel and direction so that we can leave and be God's people in a context of ungodly scoffers. How are you going to go out? How are you going to play the game? How are you going to live? How are you going to do it? How are you going to work together? We're just all going to huddle together and kind of go around the world, kind of, you know, nice together like this? Or is there a reality that that's not where we live? And we need to be comfortable and ready to engage people that are part of the culture. And although they may scoff, be ready to give an answer and be confident with that answer. And not ashamed about the answer. That's contending for the faith. So friends, living in this ungodly context as part of God's sovereignty means that we have some decisions to make. <clears throat> this is not easy stuff. I have four, I want to say, decisions we could make. Are we going to, first of all, cave in and give up the fight? It is hard. It is hard to live in the context of ungodliness. When scoffers are scoffing. Now sadly, it is easy for some to look at the state of Christianity and the divisions in the church and say to themselves, what a load of nonsense. All these Christians do is fight amongst themselves. I'm tired of it. I have had enough of Christianity. I have better things to do with my time. And there's a sense in which you, you can say, I can't blame them for some of that attitude because there is ample conflict and division within the modern day church. But the question we must ask, if we're going to be honest, is this. Is the division of the church always a bad thing? So there's this kind of idea out there that division of the church is, is anathema. You should never have division. We should all be united together. Well, wait a second. It depends on what you call a church. And it depends on what you're dividing about. Now, one of the things that I have experienced um, a number of years ago, you guys may remember that I was forced to resign in a particular context, and since that time, I have been sought out by a number of guys who have gone through very, very similar things in the Bay Area. They have been told by other people, hey, you know what, you might want to go talk to Rod. He's been through it, whatever it is. And we come and we talk and we share similar circumstances. And, and all these guys want to do is to lovingly and carefully open up God's word and love on the people that are there. But the people in the church, the leaders in the church, they want something different. And there's a sense in which there's a caving in to the thinking of the world to say we're going to give up on the truth. We're going to try other things. And there's a time when division in the church is a necessary thing. But does God call on his children to fight for his truth? What's the answer? Is contending for the faith going to cause division in the visible body of Christ? What's the answer? Yes. You see, false teachers enter the church and cause division. Faithful pastors preach the truth and ungodly people won't like it and will band together, causing division. So the question is, why is there division? If it's because you want your sensual lifestyle and you want Jesus at the same time, we have a problem. Because any pastor worth his salt will not capitulate to that kind of thinking. He can't, because that is not what the gospel says. Now the division caused by the faithful is always a call back to what is historically orthodox. It's going back to the fact this is the pure gospel. It's going back to the reality that you know what? We are sinful creatures in need of a Savior. 
that God in his wisdom before the creation of the world had a plan and had you in mind and is working that plan and he shares that gospel and those whom he has called will respond. And if you want to look at it from another perspective, those who hear the gospel answer by saying, I am humbling myself before you. I'm recognizing my sinfulness. I'm embracing you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for giving me the strength and the ability to do that, Lord. And we enter into the family of God. But a pure, unperverted gospel that denies sensuality is not popular in today's context. A healthy submission to Jesus Christ, who is Messiah, who is Lord, is not appreciated in a scoffing, ungodly context. Well, people give lip service to it, but deep down, they don't want that. They don't want what God says because they want to live their lives the way they want to live them. So friends, if you're tempted to give up the faith because there is so much division in the church, you don't have a healthy biblical understanding of what it means to contend for the faith and the natural implications of that contending. Now, I've watched Larry King live a number of times. In particular, I've watched Larry King lives when, when he's had special religious guests on before. You know what I'm talking about? Um, is it Deepak Chopra, whatever his name is, and maybe they, they'll have Bishop Spong, or they'll have um, uh, Joel Osteen, and they'll ask some questions, and of course the, the, the answers will be kind of all just kind of floating out here in Never Never Land, you know, and, and someone needs to bring them down into the concrete. And then what he does is he turns to his two favorite guest, um, guests that are on the show, one by the name of John MacArthur, the other one, Al Mohler. You know what they do? They say, well, this is what God's word says. And let me tell you what God's word says. Let me tell you what it means. Let me tell you how it is applied. They don't get angry. They don't get upset. They just speak the truth faithfully. And friends, that is what God is calling us to do. In the context of potentially giving up, we need to be reminded that God's truth is the only answer. His gospel is pure. Christ is Jesus, the Lord of lords. So we don't have to cave in. We don't have to give up and throw in the towel. We, we need to remember the foundations of our faith and continually build upon those. Are we going to cave in? I hope not. And sadly, you probably know people who have. They've walked away. And they've allowed some of these really faulty arguments to come in, and they haven't seen things for what they really are. The second one is this. Are we going to conform? Are we going to conform to their ideologies? To conform means that we abandon what God has revealed as true. We have other historical examples in Scripture where God's people stopped believing in God because they took their eyes off Him. And I just want to draw your attention to the sin cycle that we have in the book of Judges. I'm not going to turn to any particular passage, but if you go to the, the book of Judges and you read it, you'll see there's this sin cycle, and this is how it goes. The people are told to honor God and to live according to His will. And in that commandment, they're told, hey, listen, don't worship any other gods. Don't intermarry with any of the pagan people in the lands in which you live. By the way, all those people were supposed to be destroyed when they entered the land anyway. But you still need to honor me in that context. But the people not wanting to be under the yoke of God's authority and to be free to pursue their own pleasures, they abandon God and begin to worship other gods, little g, and marrying the pagan people of the lands and soon over time they are under the dominion of the pagan people oppressed and abused and they would cry out to God for deliverance from their bondage what do you think God did God in his grace and mercy would send a deliverer a judge who would free the people from their bondage and call them back to repentance to put him first in their lives, to submit to his word. And the people would repent and they would return. And, and, and soon, however, the next generation would begin to wander again, would be, would be 
you know, upset with the yoke of God's bondage and his commandments as being kind of burdensome and they would wander off to worship other gods and to find other, other people to marry. And again, this confusion would take place as far as worship is concerned and there would be this conformity. And friends, we must be very, very careful that we do not follow a similar pattern where we are allowing ourselves just to, to not, not just to give up but now to conform to what they want us to do. Friends, there is no shelter from God's consequences if you are a child of God and you abandon him. Let me explain that. When we go through the, the, the passage on church discipline, when someone is ultimately put out of the church, the idea isn't there, you drop, kick him out of there, you can't be here anymore, you stay out of here. It's, that's not the idea. The idea is by virtue of pleading with them to repent and that constant denial and refusal to repent, they are choosing to step outside of the protection of the body of Christ and now they are in the midst of the prince of the power of the air and all that he is doing and it will run them ragged and the goal there is that this will discipline them to get back to the church. And so we need to pray for people that we know that have abandoned God who have gone the way of the world that the world will send them back, so to speak, to the body of Christ because of all they're experiencing and the suffering they're going through. He will pursue you, but you may have to endure the natural consequences of your way until you come running back to him in repentance. Now, friends, if, if you're a parent of a, of a young person who has wandered off, the prayer is that God would draw that person back. And it may mean some difficult circumstances. It may mean going through some difficult trials. But all as a disciplining hand, a loving disciplining hand to alert that person that there is the body of Christ where they can find refuge and help and restoration. But we have a choice to cave in, to conform. The next one is, we have a choice now to compromise. Are we going to compromise? Are we going to compromise so as not to cause any friction with scoffers? To compromise means that we don't necessarily abandon God in our minds, nor do we directly or specifically oppose the false teachers of our day. It's a, a middle ground where we can tolerate one another, be united as the church, and impact the world for God. Why make waves when we can just be united? Don't we want to reach people? Don't we want to impact them? And why so much division? It says, if God really or is really about love, then we should find a middle ground so we, don't, we won't be seen as unloving. It says, certainly God wants us to be mirrors of his love to a hurting world. It says, how can we meet people's needs if the message of the gospel is so hard for them to receive? It says, maybe we should soften the message of the gospel and tell them that he isn't concerned about their sin. He loves them and he is inviting them to come to him, be one of his children, that all they need to do is to accept his offer of forgiveness. Friends, that is a capitulation. That is compromising the gospel that is giving a half or not even that much of a gospel but friends this is the kind of christian religion i put that in quotes that is running rampant in our country and around the world it doesn't want to contend for the faith it wants to get along it wants to be viewed in its community as being nice It would rather live in peace with men than stand for the truth of God. It is more concerned for being liked than for being accu an accurate reflection of the glory of God. I hear this, friends. I don't mean this in a, in a, in a boastful, bragging way, but hear this. I, I would, would much rather be appreciated for being honest about what God says than to be liked because I am withholding what God says. Are we willing to be honest with people about God's truth? When a pagan world and even a Christian culture ask questions like, 
do you believe that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven? How will you answer? Or maybe to put it a little differently, do you actually believe that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven? How about yes? That's what the Bible says. See, it's not about you. Your strength and your power is not about you. The strength and the power comes from this is what God says in his word. Now, if someone wants to reject his word, that's a completely different issue. Or here's another question. Do you believe that Jesus is so cruel as to send everyone to hell who doesn't believe? Oh, I wouldn't want to think that God is cruel. I mean, he's loving, isn't he? Well, God isn't cruel. In fact, the question is an improper question. He is just. So I don't think he's cruel, but he is just in sending those people to hell. Do you believe that Jesus approves of an immoral lifestyle? How will you answer? When a person sitting across from you is actively involved in an immoral lifestyle, Well, I hate to say it, but kind of. See, we, we were afraid to actually say in a bold, careful, clear way, but this is what Scripture says. Do you, do you believe that man's real problem is his sin? How can you say that? You actually believe it's, it's sin? I'm a good person. Yeah, you might think that you're a good person, but the Bible says, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Now, if you want me to get into the explanation of that, it's a whole other matter, but this is what Scripture says. I am a sinner. You're a sinner. We are tainted with sin. That's the reality of it. Do you believe that Jesus will be returning one day to call his children home to establish his kingdom and to judge all those who scoffed at him, rejected him, ignored him, or didn't care. Will you answer that truthfully? See, we, we, we were often put on the, might want to say, the, the, you know, on our back foot, so to speak, with questions like this, like, oh, how should I answer, how should I answer? You don't have to come up with an answer. You let the Word of God come up with the answer. And this is where our understanding of the Word of God is helpful in answering those who scoff. The last one is this. Are we going to contend? Are we going to contend? Contend for the faith so as to honor God. Now listen, sometimes contending for the faith means dying. It means dying. Now two men come to mind when I think of this. Two men who contended for the faith in the context of bloody Mary, Queen of England, when she came to the throne, in particular one of the first few people that she gathered up and she arrested and examined and condemned to be burned were Bishop Ridley and Hugh Latimer. And when Ridley was asked if he believed the Pope was heir to the authority of Peter as the foundation of the church, he replied that the church was not built on any man but on the truth Peter confessed that Christ was the Son of God. You see, Bloody Mary was a Catholic. Ridley said he could not honor the Pope in Rome since the papacy was seeking its own glory, not the glory of God. Neither Ridley nor Latimer could accept the Roman Catholic Mass as a sacrifice of Christ, saying, Christ made one oblation and sacrifice for the sins of the world, and that perfect sacrifice, that a perfect sacrifice, neither needeth there be nor can there be any other propitiatory sacrifice? What he's saying is this. Jesus Christ died on the cross once for all. In communion, Jesus is not sacrificed again. There's no need for it. It has been accomplished. Which, of course, got the Catholics really upset because that's what they believe. Now, both Ridley and Latimer were burned, but Ridley still suffered greatly with 
with a loud voice, readily cried out, Into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. But the wood that was used under him to burn him at the stake was green, and so he started burning at the bottom, and it didn't come up to his top, and so he suffered greatly. Latimer died much more quickly than um, Ridley did. As the flames quickly rose, Latimer encouraged Ridley in the, in the midst of his trial there, and he says this, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Now, friends, there's a contending going on there that is a contending unto death. And there have been many people who have died fighting for the truth of the gospel. And I do not mean fighting in the sense of with a sword in hand. I'm talking about just standing firm on the truth of what God's word teaches. Sometimes contending means being willing to fight. First of all, willing to die. It's also willing to fight. This past week, actually about two weeks ago, I got an email from Russia uh, about a co-laborer in Russia by the name of Natasha. And she has been arrested by the Bashkorten um, government claiming that she is imprisoning children for the purpose of selling them for adoption. Now, I first met Natasha, I think it was 2006. I went to Ufa for the first time and saw the children's ministry that she was overseeing there. She ministers to street kids. She has this kind of network of people that cook all this food and they and big pots, and, and they, they go out to these various locations in the city of Ufa because these children, many of them abandoned. Some of them have homes, but their parents just neglect them. And so they, they live in stairwells. They live up in, the, in the, um, the kind of attics of these high-rises that they have in Russia. And they went to these key places, and they would provide food for these children. Over the course of time, she's been able to purchase a home. And in this home, when the kids come, um, she delouses their, their clothes and them. She gives them a place where they can, they can rest if need be. She teaches them some basic things about hygiene and life. She also shares the gospel. In fact, um, each summer, she would, she would be the, the head of a children's camp that took place outside of the city of Ufa. In fact, uh, Ilya, didn't you work at the camp? Ilya did. And then Betty also worked at that camp. And that was quite an experience. You can ask them about that. Um, but she has now been arrested um, with these trumped-up charges that she is running this kind of children's ministry as a front to gain these children to, to um, um, kidnap them for the purpose of selling them as, uh, or for adoption. Now, what's interesting is that the local authorities, they're just shaking their heads saying, we love what you do but there's someone higher up that's saying, I want this to stop. Well, there were a few times that the government tried to shut down the camp, and she actually marched herself into the magistrate, and she told him what for in Russian. I'm not exactly sure what that would sound like. But she basically told him up and down, whatever, and they said, okay, you're released, blah, blah, blah. You know, she's a very, very strong, powerful lady standing firm on the truth of God's word. And I would just encourage you to, to pray for her, but sometimes we have to be willing to fight. And that's what she's doing in her context. Now, sometimes contending for the faith simply means being willing to stand. To stand is, is a word that is used in Scripture that means not compromising, not caving in, not conforming. Instead, we are to be planting our feet firmly so that the enemy cannot make any progress in us or through us. It's a picture of that Roman soldier who has that position with his shield up and his sword ready, and he's going to hold off the enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That being steadfast, immovable is that same picture. Ephesians 6.13, talking about the armor of God. Verse 13, it says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Now friends, this all comes from this little section here where Jude says to his people, Remember the predictions of the apostles. 
in those latter times, there will be scoffers who have their own sinful, sensual agendas. How are you going to function in that context? Well, remember God's sovereignty. God has called you. Now, just hear this as we conclude. God, let's put it this way. You were born and are living in the age God sovereignly chose for you. Some of you are afraid about your children growing up in America. Things that are going on in our political climate, you're saying, I don't know how they're going to make it. I don't know what's going to happen. But just hear this. God brought those children into the world to glorify him in the context that he's bringing them into the world. So there's a place for them to live. There's a place for them to glorify God. He never promised that it was going to be this pristine Christian culture. What he promises is in the last days, what? Scoffers will come scoffing. And God has called each of us to this context. He's called us then, secondly, into this culture here in the Bay Area and to this, culture, this context to live your life for his glory. And you can add to that your workplace, your neighborhood, your schools, your relationships, all those things are all part of his sovereign context. And it may be full of people who are scoffers and ungodly and want to pursue their own ways, but God has called us to live in light of his sovereignty in such a way that we are contending for the faith for his glory. So don't fight his sovereignty. Instead, be thankful. Be teachable. Be humble. Be bold. And finally, I would invite you to watch a video I've placed on the city or on my blog. It's an interview from the 70s with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's an example of someone who is carefully, boldly, confidently contending for the faith. You can go there to the city. My, my blog is, I think, listed somewhere there. But it's a wonderful 19 minutes of just hearing a man of God being challenged about his faith and just pulling up Scripture very kindly and gently, speaking the truth, speaking the truth, speaking the truth. And the interview is just like, wow, wow. See, we don't have to be cantankerous when we're contending. We can just... Point to the word of God, present it, proclaim it for his glory. That's the first thing. Lord, help us as we live in this particular kind of context, Lord, not to fight it, not to try and isolate ourselves from it inappropriately. Oh, Lord, we need the church. We need some of these places of, of haven and, and safety and refuge. But, Lord, all life cannot be lived that way. We need to recognize, Lord, you've called us to live in this context. And, Lord, in that context, you've called us to contend, to speak the truth in a way that can be clear and that points to you and your word. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you, we ask in your precious name. Amen.